Danger, Will Robinson, you know, a catchphrase from the 1960s American television series Lost in Space. They recently did a remake of it on Netflix, and it, it was decent, uh, maybe not as good as the original. But the, the robot in Lost in Space really functions as a surrogate guardian to young Will Robinson. And, and they've created all kinds of memes with the robot because he'll like do his arms oscillating like this while he's, danger, Will Robinson, he, whenever there's any impending threat that comes to him. We're in a sermon series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we've, got, we've come to chapter 10, a danger passage, a warning passage. If you're just joining in, what's the danger that they're facing? What's the danger for the Corinthian uh, Christians and, and the church? Well, some of them... Some of them wanted to eat in idol temples. It was a city where you know, the temple of Athena was there, the, the temple of um, Aphrodite was there, lots of temple, temples where sacrifices would take place. And they wanted to go and dine there. Um, they perhaps wanted to go and visit a temple prostitute or two who was also there. They wanted to participate in the imperial festivals, which increasingly were ways to honor the emperor who was at this point um, considered increasingly considered divine and they wanted to participate in that and all the while they said it's okay we can handle this like it's fine this can't hurt us but what if it can <laughs> you know what if uh, what if you're playing with fire what if when we're dabbling around with sin and not taking god seriously and we're thinking that we can live life on our own terms and thinking that, you know, this can't hurt me. What, what if it can? The, the trouble with preaching danger passages such as this is inevitably the wrong people draw the wrong conclusions. You know, the tender consciences among us are going to conclude in a sermon like this, oh no, he's talking about me. I, I knew there was something wrong with my relationship with God. I knew there was something wrong with me. While the, the, the people who are listening who really need to be warned and woken out of their slumber uh, easily dismiss it and say, well, you know, I'm glad that he's talking to somebody else. This is, doesn't apply to me. And so what I'm just hoping, what I really hope is that the Holy Spirit will speak to each one of us. The, the word that we need to hear, uh, I mean, I, I can't look into your heart. I have the hard, hard enough time looking into my own to know where where my relationship or your relationship with God is. I, I do know, though, that we, it's easy to grow insensitive towards sin in our lives. It's easy to be self-deluded. It's easy to be blind and excuse our behavior for any number of reasons and say, well, it, it's not harming me. It's easy to, to deny the voice of the Holy Spirit and live life, live life on our own terms all the while, never missing church on a Sunday, <laughs> you know, being at church every single Sunday. Um, so listen, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 22. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses, into the cloud, and into the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food, they drank the same spiritual drink. For They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. 
Now, these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, you know, the people sat down to eat and drink and and got up to party. And party here is kind of a euphemistic uh, way of speaking of sexual immorality. Verse 8, let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died. And let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. And don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has come upon you except that which is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you will be able to bear it. So then, my dear friends, flee idolatry. I I am speaking to sensible people. I mean, judge for yourselves what I'm saying. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? He's obviously talking here about the Lord's Supper. Uh, The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Don't those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Uh, What am I saying then? The food sacrifice to idols, that food sacrifice to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is God's word. Let's pray again. Come, Holy Spirit, and open our eyes. Whatever in our lives is there and is displeasing to you, Uh, whatever is harming us in self-destructive behavior or harming others, whatever it is that we are are blind towards or provoking you to jealousy towards, whatever we're unwilling to, to be corrected on, please, Holy Spirit, come and show us and change us. Give us, give us your heart, a new heart. Amen. Yeah, heavy passage, obviously. Um, Let's start out, I wondered if you noticed just the baptismal connection he makes in the first few verses. He says in in verses 1 through 4, I think it is, that the children of Israel were baptized into Moses. And their baptism took place in the Red Sea crossing. And in in that moment, when they, you know, left Egypt, passed through the waters of the sea, their status you might say, changed. I mean, they went from being a people who were oppressed and enslaved to the Pharaoh, and, and their status changed to being a free people, a new people, you might uh, say, who, who are now under Moses. That's why they were baptized into Moses. Notice also that the whole community was baptized. Every single one who experienced it from, you know, the seven-day-old infant all the way up to the 70-year-old patriarch. They could all equally say, 
after having passed through that baptism, we are Moses' people. You know, that moment transformed the way that they thought of themselves and, um, and the way that they thought of one another, really, just as our baptism um, does for us. When we're baptized, uh, we become Jesus' people. Nevertheless, Paul says, uh, the story, as you know, takes a, a very dark, a, a dark, dark direction. They go on to commit adultery with a golden calf. They engage in, like, wild orgies. They're constantly grumbling against God and blaspheming God. And so even though that they were baptized, that baptism didn't save them from God's judgment. And his point is that, like, hey, your baptism is wonderful. It's, it's, it's special, but it won't save you either. No, we're supposed to learn from their example. Now, I don't want the whole sermon to be like the Debbie Downer sermon uh, on Sunday afternoon. Uh, so I want to highlight a, a few things that I find encouraging in the, in the middle of this hard word that he speaks. And the first is the promise of verse 13. I mean, thankfully, there's a wonderful promise given in verse 13. It's a famous verse. You may, if you are familiar with the Bible, know it. It's given to any Christian who is struggling with... Uh, what, what I ought to do, and, and how do I do the right thing, the thing that God is, is telling me to do. And it begins this way, verse 13. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. Now, on one level, you might say, uh, whatever your problem is, your problem is unique. How is that? Well, because no one has ever been you before. <laughs> and Today, October the 29th, 2023, it's, it's never been this day before. There has never been a you in this place, Scottsdale, in Arizona, at 4.38 in the afternoon on October 29th, um, 29th. And so in one sense, you know, the problems that we experience are always unique. But Paul's making the point that on another level, you know, our struggles are common. Like, really, our struggles, they all share essentially the same characteristics. And so when we are tempted in any given dilemma to say the things that we often say, like, well, nobody can understand what I'm going through, you know, what I'm facing, nobody else can, can, uh, can really understand it, you know, what I'm going through is utterly unique. That's not true. What you're going through is only partially unique, <laughs> Really, whatever ethical struggle you're facing, um, it's something that is common to every human being that has walked the face of the earth. That actually, that unites us in a certain way. It, it joins us together. It's like when we look past the facade of a person who's smiling back at us, there's a heart that is breaking, usually, over some of the same things our hearts are breaking. He can, the good news, though, he goes on to, to say in verse 13 is God is faithful, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. God is faithful. That's an amazing statement. To say that God is faithful is to say that really he is staking his integrity, his, his divine integrity on this, that, that I won't allow any temptation to go beyond your ability to bear up. You know, I heard somebody as they were uh, speaking about this passage, they liken God, kind of in a funny metaphor, they liken God to, to being the perfect gym coach, you know. <laughs> and, 
And the perfect gym coach, if there could ever exist such a person, uh, is going to be somebody who is uh, committed to getting you into shape and who's going to give you exactly the kinds of exercises and exactly the kind of regimen that is matched to your ability to, to handle it. You know, the perfect gym coach is not going to give you one lap too much. Neither are they going to give you one lap too little. You know, not one rep too much, because one rep too much may injure you. Not one rep too little, because one lap too, rep too little, you will not get all the benefit out of the exercises. I mean, the, the key is that the exercise that the gym coach gives you has to push you to your limits, or else you will not end up you know, pushing ahead. And I think, well, how does that apply? I think that many times when you and I are faced with a moral conflict, an, an, an ethical dilemma, it, it can feel like in that moment that, that God, is, we, we say things like this, God is asking too much of me. Like, I, I can't do what he's telling me to do. Uh, to do what he commands in this instance would just absolutely kill me. I, I can't do it. But isn't that, I mean, those of you who have done athletics before, isn't that how you feel when you have a, a good coach, <laughs> a, a coach who's leading you and your team? I mean, it always felt like they were killing you. I remember back to the days when I was playing basketball, and, you know, you're running suicides up and down the court, uh, and it always felt like, you know, the coach, they were giving you more than your ability, Yet when you actually did it, when you actually followed through, when you actually listened to them, you found incredibly enough, as hard as it was, you made it, and it pushed back the horizons of what you thought you could accomplish. And so Paul is bringing us back to that great promise that God is, is so faithful. When you and I say, I can't do it, I can't change, I can't face this, I can't endure, he is saying, you can with me. You absolutely can with me. He's promising you, uh, he's staking his integrity that his way is best and that if you stick with, with him and the Holy Spirit, he will bring you through it. Um, I will bring you through it, he says. Okay, back to verse 13. So the end of the promise reads, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. Essentially, what he's saying is that whatever form of struggle may present itself, there's an escape hatch. Like, there really is a God-appointed escape hatch. Escape is always possible. And you know, in our cynicism, in our repeated defeats with sin, we may not believe that. We, we don't believe that. We may think that our sin is inevitable. We may think that medicating with porn uh, or overeating or any number of compulsive behaviors is just Inevitable because I've done it so many times before and, and I've, I've failed and the same thing is going to happen again and again. It's inevitable. No, it's not. The faithfulness of God means like two things, that he both gives endurance, endurance in the, the struggle, and he also provides a means to escape. And so that's the first word that I want to speak about a danger passage. The second one is, there's some really cool stuff going on here um, about the Lord's Supper and how we, how we really can um, have, find spiritual strength in the Lord's Supper. You know, many of you are either familiar with uh, or, or you grew up in a church that had 
a table like this right at the front of the sanctuary, right? And what does it read? This do in remembrance of me. Somebody helpfully asked me the other week, like, why is it that at Reconcile Church you celebrate the Lord's Supper each week? And the answer, part of the answer that I would give to that is because what we're doing is more than just remembrance. <laughs> more than remembrance is, is going on. I mean, look at, at verse 16, if you have your Bibles or it's on the screen. What Paul does here is he calls the Lord's Supper a participation or sharing in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Jesus? The bread that we break, is it not a, a sharing in the body of Jesus? Like, something more than remembrance is going on. I'm struck by the fact that Paul really believed that the, the material elements of bread and wine in the Christian family meal somehow, mysteriously, uh, become vessels or vehicles for the personal life of the Messiah to, to be given to, to our, the people, to, to his people, to come to us. The argument that he makes is, is kind of technical and it can be a little hard to follow, but what I, what I think he's saying, the best that I understand the argument, is because, is because in the Lord's Supper we really share in the body and blood of Jesus, that is what unites us. Like our communion is not just communion with Jesus, it's sharing in Jesus together. And it's us sharing the life of Jesus together in the bread and in the wine. That is what unites us. Because, he goes on, because we eat of the same loaf and drink of the same drink and receive the same life, the shared life of the Messiah is like the principal grounds for our unity if you know anything about church history, you're like, how did things go so wrong? <laughs> because, you know, all of our disagreements related to, you know, communion, Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, whatever you call it, I, you know, this table, which is supposed to be you know, the shared life, our unity, ends up becoming, you know, tragically, this, this table of, of deep division. Okay, let's circle back. How does this, his words about the spiritual life we get at the table, how does it fit into the broader discussion with eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols? Well, here's how it fits. He's warning the Corinthian, the Corinthian Christians that if you go into a temple that's filled with idols and you eat the food that's been sacrificed there on the altar to those idols, you may become sharers in those idols. You know, you participate in them. He knows that you know, all an idol is is wood or stone or gold. It's just a statue. There's nothing, there's nothing really there. It's, it's just a man-made creation. But there is something behind it. You know, there, is, there are evil forces and demonic powers that are, that are behind it that use the worship offered to these non-gods in order to gain power over both worshipers and the world around us. And so he goes on to say that those who sit at the Messiah's table should never, ever flirt with those dark, um, you know, possibilities of sharing life with evil powers. Now, he's careful not to say a whole lot about the powers. Inquiring minds want to know more. Like, tell us more. Tell us more about these demons. And, And he doesn't. He doesn't want the Corinthian Christians to get 
uh, too interested in those demons. At first glance, this is a passage that, again, feels uh, um, 100,000 miles away from us, because, I mean, like, where are idols, man-made figurines, and and temples in our our world today? Uh, Where where are demons to be found in Scottsdale? Like, how, how does this how does this apply? And I'll, I'll tell you that it's not always easy to, it's not always easy to really actually know. I, I mean, I've had conversations with people, though, you probably have too, who have experimented with psychedelic drugs, who, um, I mean, mushrooms are a very big thing right now, who've, you know, done mushroom trips. Remember, it was in the news this week that a, a pilot was on mushrooms sitting in the the passenger seat in the cockpit and almost tried to take a plane down. And what they say is, you know, the psychedelics open our minds into a world that we didn't you know they existed. And it's, it's amazing to see, so to speak, what, what is out there. But inevitably, that what they find is that what is out there is not all benign. You know, it's dark and it's dangerous. Um, I think we can look at social and political movements in the world and absolutely see, you know, demons behind them. I want you to consider this story. It occurred in 1940. A young man enters a movie theater in Manhattan. Uh, the year before, at the age of 32, this young man had released his, his complete um, work of poems. Now, how is that for a, a level of bravado? At the age of 32, and you've, re, you know, released your, your complete magnum opus of uh, poetry. He was immediately hailed as one of the most significant and important poets in the Western world. He was also known as one of the most prominent and articulate spokesmen of Marxism in his day, and all by the age of 32. So it's 1940, he goes into a movie theater, and remember back in those days, they didn't show sneak peeks, previews of movies before the main movie. What did they show in 1940? There would be news clips, right? Uh, Primarily of the the war, of World War II that was taking place, and I think they called it uh, scenes from the front, and they would show news stories and scenes from the war. Well, on this particular day, they were showing the Third Reich it was, as it was entering into Poland and arresting and rounding up the population of Jews and gypsies and other undesirables. And as he's, he's sitting there, as he's watching it, he's surrounded by German-Americans, and they start to rise out of their seats while watching the video. And they begin calling out aloud, kill them, kill them. And this is Manhattan. And there's this furious mob in the movie theater with him, you know, just frothing at the mouth saying, kill them. And this young Marxist poet exits the theater. He, he is shaking, he is trembling, and he's like, what did I just witness back there? Oh my God, I have never seen anything like that before. There is something going on back in that movie theater that my materialistic worldview uh, cannot account for. There is something inexpressibly evil, inhumanly evil. And I swear there was a spiritual power pervading and influencing that mob. Writing in his journal later that night, uh, he said, quote, nothing in my materialist perspective could have explained the evil I witnessed. And so much to the show, and then, 
And then to much to the shock of the intellectual world in that day, um, and to the scandal of his contemporaries, W.H. Auden converted to Christianity at the age of 32. You may, you may know, you know, Auden in his poems. I mean, absolutely, uh, there's something demonic about uh, the anti-Semitism that was in the world then and is in the world today. And, um, and it, it's not just that. It's per- persuasive, pervasive. So just, he says, be on your guard. There are places that are dark. There are forces that are dangerous. Don't toy with them. Don't toy with movements that are evil. Um, then secondly, and this is going to be my last point, but he gives us in our struggles nourishment from the Lord's Supper. There's a really cool thing, though, he goes on to say about how, how Israel drank from the rock. You know, did you catch that in verse 4 where he's saying, you know, we all drank from the, they all drank from the, they all ate from the same spiritual food, the manna. They all drank from the same spiritual drink, which was the, the rock. And he says that rock was Christ. What he's doing is he's referring to an incident back in the Old Testament from Exodus chapter 17. So the Israelites were working their way towards Mount Sinai, and they were very thirsty. They're in the middle of the desert. They grumbled, and so God told Moses, you know, to take his staff and and strike the rock. This picture is a Renaissance uh, painting that I think is, I forget the uh, the, um, artist, but it's hanging in the Vatican today. And he strikes the rock, water comes out. That's not the only instance where the, Israel, the children of Israel drink from water from a rock. Uh, it happens at the beginning of their wilderness period, as I said in Exodus 17, and at the very end of the wilderness period, 40 years later, in Numbers 20. What is wild is that it led to a fairly widespread interpretation among uh, Jews in, in the Jewish tradition that there were there were uh, two rocks that there were not two rocks sorry there were not two rocks but there was actually one rock and it was the same rock that followed them that accompanied them all through their 40 yard 40 year journey you've probably seen pictures of the rocks in the Mojave Desert Death Valley that that walk around um, you know, every time the Israelites would move camp, this in, the tradition maintained, the rock would roll around after them, and that became the source from which Israel drank all during their time in the wilderness. There's a certain ancient logic at work here that makes sense. I mean, the, the Israelites had miraculous provision of manna and quail for, for 40 years. Every morning, they, they had a nice helping of that. But what about water? I mean, are we to think that the, that the corresponding miraculous supply of water was only given twice for 40 years, uh, separating the two occasions? Of, of course not. And so they thought to solve this problem, the water supply must be mobile. You know, and, and the rock becomes this portable drinking fountain that follows the children of Israel. Paul is a Jewish interpreter, Paul, a very smart man, and he's undoubtedly familiar with this creative Jewish handling of the water from the rock incident, but he puts his own spin on it in verse 4. He says, for they drank from the spiritual rock, and here's the key, that followed them, and that rock was Christ. What's he saying? He's saying the source of sustenance for the children of Israel 
the spiritual rock reality was actually Jesus himself. Like that Jesus was the one who was journeying with them all those years through the desert. That he is the true origin of the drink that they received. You know, I said earlier that it was Moses who was commanded to uh, strike the rock, and after the rock was hit, it was struck, water flows. Uh, I mean, Isaiah, writing hundreds of years later, said that the, the, that the Lamb of God was struck uh, for our iniquities. He was pierced for, for our transgressions. And there on the cross, after he struck, blood and water flow out of his side. Um, You know, Paul reads the Bible differently than we do. Uh, I love the fact that he sees Jesus in in places and ways that we wouldn't normally notice. The the normal way we we have this grammatical historical reading where we try to figure out, you know, what what did the words mean to the original author and that original context? But I, I don't know. I, I think that there's a way to read the Bible that is, is broader, that, that's, much, that's much more wide-ranging and beautiful. And what he wants you to see is that Jesus is the sustenance. Um, he can be the sustenance for you. Whatever it is that you uh, are struggling with to obey God in, I mean, the answer, the answer is Jesus. It is. In conclusion, you may remember in the silver chair, the, the great children's novel with, you have the Im- image of um, Jill. She's thirsty. She's so thirsty. And she's walking through Narnia without anything to drink. She comes upon a stream and, and she's so thirsty. And there on the stream is this lion, this frightening, terrible lion. And she just waits there. And waits for him to finally move, and it feels like she waits forever and ever, and the lion won't go away until finally the lion, the lion speaks to her and says, if you're thirsty, you may drink. For a second, Jill stared here and there, wondering who was it that had spoken, but then the voice said again, if you are thirsty, come and drink. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a, a sort of heavy golden voice, Are you thirsty? said the lion. And Jill said, I am dying of thirst. Then drink. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The the delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. And she asked fearfully, Do you eat little girls? And he replied, I have swallowed up girls and boys, men and women, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. And Jill replied, I I dare not come and drink. And the lion said, then you will die of thirst. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and and look for another stream then. And the lion replied to her. What does he say? There is, there is no other stream. The greatest danger is to think that there is another stream that that you can go to that's going to sustain you, a romantic relationship, career success, uh, your children, 
hobbies, fun, comfort, beauty. There's not. There's no other stream. There's no other rock. And that's why my prayer for you, my prayer for me, my prayer you know, for our community is that we would learn to just drink deeply of Jesus Christ. Amen.